Okay, let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, I, I just totally love this book. I don't know what it is, but it, it's just, you know, seeing the struggle and all of the things that have happened to David and just the, you know, his life and, and, and times. <laughs> and really, that's where we are at, right? Uh, life and times of fill in, your, fill in your name, the life and times. And, you know, when you think about... You know, all the things that God had promised through his word concerning David. And then for David to be in the midst of it and, and, and you know, doing well some days. And then there was these patches where he just seemed to have lost his mind. Just doing things and, and involving himself in things that just didn't make sense. And... Um, there's something about that. And then getting through on the other side, God getting him through, and then continuing to use David and not, you know, brushing aside the frailty and even the sin, but, you know, the Lord continuing to use him. And I want to encourage you tonight as we read the life of David and we go through these things, not only in David's life, but in these other characters, you know, take heart because God is not, he's not changed. The Bible says that he is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. He cannot change. He's immutable. He cannot change. Because he, we change because we're not perfect. And we're changing from glory to glory. But see, God is already all those things. He's the summation of everything in perfection. And so he doesn't need to change. But I and you, we need to change. And I pray that you do. And, and no doubt in David, as he is going through this, we're, going to be, we're seeing him change. And God desiring those around him to change as well. And to me, it's a wonderful story. And it's not just a story, honestly. I hate to use that word because it's overused in our culture. But it, these are real events, but they, they just give me hope. And I pray that it does for you as well. No matter what you're in, no matter what season of life you're in, even if you think you're doing well and things are going great, you may not be in a place like that. You may be in a, a valley. You may be in a, a trench. And maybe you feel like you can't get out and you can't see the, the light at the end of the tunnel yet. But as a child of God, you can trust in him. And sometimes he does his best work in those darkest valleys where nobody can see when you're kind of just wondering what's happening. And, and trust God that in the basement of your heart, unbeknownst to everyone else around you, and maybe even unbeknownst to you as well, he is working in the deep recesses of your soul, preparing you, working in you, so that when he brings you through to the other side, you're going to come forth as gold. See, that's what we all want. We want to come forth as gold. We want the baby without the labor pains, <laughs> right? But it just doesn't work that way. Something about the human condition, we, we got to learn. We got to grow. And sometimes it's very painful. So you remember last week, we looked at chapter 2 of Second Samuel, and we saw that David was finally anointed king over Judah alone in the town of Hebron. Hebron is um, a town not too far away from Jerusalem, and, uh, or, or south of Jerusalem. And it used to be called Kirjath Arba, uh, means the, the city of Arba, who was one of the giants in the land in those days, back in... Um, in the Pentateuch, or the first five books of Moses. But David is anointed king over that. But the rest of the, the country, the rest of Israel, the other tribes north of, of him, all of them except for Judah, or except for, um, except for Benjamin, all of them were under the authority of Saul. And we know that Saul passes from the scenes with his sons in the battle with the Philistines, and so David, he's anointed king and he, uh, over Hebron, or over Judah in Hebron, excuse me. And you remember that Abner, who was the commander of Saul's army, he takes Ishbosheth, who is the youngest son of Saul, and he makes him king. He makes him king. And really, Abner is the, the power behind the throne. Ishbosheth seems to me like a very. Um, not really a leader at all, but he's a, he's a figurehead anyway. But really, Abner was really the power behind the throne, or so he thought. But we find that Abner puts Ishbosheth in power at Mahanaim, which is east of the Jordan River. And there came a time when uh, 
Ishbosheth and Abner, they decide to go after Judah. And we see that in verse 12 of chapter 2. They go after them, trying to subjugate them into coming under the authority of Ishbosheth and Abner. And instead of having a big war, remember Abner's men and Joab's men, these, these uh, warriors, they decide to have some kind of contest. And it's a small group on each side, and they fight, and whoever wins kind of wins the battle kind of thing. And we saw that with Goliath and the children of Israel, how they had one person come out, and Goliath would come out, and whoever won would be the victor over the whole thing, over the whole entire battle, instead of everybody killing each other, which I think is kind of nice. Just put boxing gloves on them, put them in a ring, and uh, let them go at it. <laughs> so in a sense, that's kind of what they did. But it, nothing really worked out that way. The men end up killing each other. And so Israel and the men of Judah, they're in this war. It, it just sparks this war. And it comes to find out, it, it works out that David's men, although fewer in number, ended up having the mastery over the men of Israel and actually had them on the run. And so what happens in the rest of this chapter is uh, Abner and his men are fleeing now from the men of Judah, ironically. And while they're fleeing, one of Joab's brothers, his name is um, Asahel, he's the youngest of, of the brothers of Zeruiah, David's sister, half-sister. And so Asahel, being the youngest and chasing this great warrior, Abner, he gets the bright idea, I'm going to go after this guy and I'm going to make a name for myself. Maybe that's what he was thinking, we really don't know. And Abner looks behind him and sees Asahel pursuing him and he tells them twice to stop pursuing him. He doesn't want to kill him. Abner, or Asahel, I don't want you to, for your brother to get mad with me. We're both generals of these armies. Just stay away, stay away. Asahel's like, I'm going after you. And so finally... Uh, Abner puts a spear through him and kills him. And then um, the men of Israel or the men of Judah continue now with great anger, following after Abner and his men. And then they finally come to a truce. They finally come to a truce. And we pick up in verse three. And what I'd like to do tonight is just to read through it. It's a, it's a lengthy chapter. It's thirty-nine verses. Let's just read through it quickly to kind of get the context of it, and then we're going to go back and take a look at it a little bit closer, okay? So it says, Now there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon by Ahinoam, the Jezreelitist. His second, Chiliab by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third, Absalom, the son of Maacah, the daughter of Talmai, king of Jeshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithriam, by David's wife, Eglah. There's a wonderful name, ladies. How'd you like to have a name like that? Oh, her name is Jessica. Her name is Sarah. Beautiful names. And Eglah. Okay. Sounds good, I think. Anyway. So anyway, Eglah. These were born to David in Hebron. And now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening, notice, Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And so Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not, and, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba, which is from the very north part of Israel down to the very southern border of Israel. And he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. Notice the king feared Abner, the real power behind the throne. So verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David saying, whose is the land? saying, Also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good. 
I'll make a covenant with you, but one thing I require of you, you may not see my face unless you first bring Michal, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. And so David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, saying, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. What a great gift that is. You know, no gift registry. I mean, can you imagine going on a gift registry? Uh, just check off the, you know, 100 Philistine foreskins. Send that to my friend. It's kind of nice, isn't it? You guys awake? That was supposed to be, like, really hilarious. But, okay, whatever. Okay, here we go. And Ishbosheth sent, verse 15, and took her from her husband from Paltiel, the son of Laish, and then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. And so Abner said to him, Go, return. He returned, poor guy. Now Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then, do it. For the Lord has spoken of David, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and the hand of all their enemies. And Abner also spoke in the hearing of Benjamin. And then Abner also went to speak in the hearing of David in Hebron, all that seemed good to Israel and the whole house of Benjamin. And so Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron. And David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And then Abner said to David, I will arise and go and gather all Israel to my lord the king, that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may reign over all that your heart desires. And so David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. At that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid and brought much spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away, and he had gone in peace. And when Joab and his troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, he sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And so the key switches to minor here. Then Joab came to the king and said, What have you done? Look, Abner came to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And, and he is already gone. Surely you realize that Abner, the son of Ner, came to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in, and to know all that you are doing. And when Joab had gone from David's presence, he sent messengers after Abner, who brought him back from the well of Sirah. But David did not know it. And now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him privately. And there he stabbed him in the stomach, so that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. And afterward, excuse me, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. Let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house. And let there never fall, fail excuse me, to be in the house of Joab, one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword, or who lacks bread. So Joab and Abishai, his brother, they killed Abner because he had killed their brother Asahel at Gibeon in the battle. And then David said to Joab and to all the people who were with him, Tear your clothes, gird yourselves with sackcloth, and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the coffin, so they buried Abner in Hebron. And the king lifted up his voice and wept at the grave of Abner. And all the people wept. And the king sang a lament over Abner and said this, Should Abner die as a fool dies, your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And then all the people wept over him again. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food while it was still day, David took an oath, saying, God, do so to me, and more also, if I taste bread or anything else till the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased all the people. For all the people and all Israel understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And then the king said to his servants, Do you not know what a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Very interesting, isn't it? It's a... It's a and what we we're going to see here and what we have read is really the continuing decline of Saul. In fact, uh, I've named the message the decline of Saul's dynasty. 
And before we get to the end of, or by the time we get to the end of chapter 4, not only are we going to find that Saul and his, all of his sons, have, except for Ishbosheth, is dead, but by, by the end of chapter 4, we're going to see that his commander-in-chief, his commander of his army, he's going to die, and finally, Ishbosheth, his youngest son, is going to pass from the scene. And at that point, it's over. There's really nothing left. The, all, the, all the knights and the queens and the knights and the bishops, they're all dead. And now it's, there's nothing left but for David to take the kingdom. And I love the fact that in all of this, David never once took his hand personally and went after any of Saul's men. David had such an integrity of heart. And you know what I find so interesting about him is, is he was a great warrior. He was a great warrior. I mean, when he worked for Saul, when he was in his... Uh, ministry, if you will, he was the commander going out. And David fought battle. He was a warrior, but he knew the difference between murder and war. Because there is a difference. When you're, when you're being attacked by people or you have to go out to war and things happen, casualties, that's just the nature of war. But when he got off the battlefield, David took a, and turned his hat around and became a different man. He wasn't a bloodthirsty man. He was a very gracious and merciful man. And that's what was so unique about him, so different from everybody around him. And what further made him unique is that he was also a musician, which is even more interesting. He was a guitar player. <laughs> and so he had this really interesting kind of personality. And God could use him. Let's go back to verse 1. It says, There was long war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but notice David grew stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. And see, this is always the case of a man of faith, which David was, Versus the man who is the man of the flesh working against God, which we know is Saul. When God has a, a, a work in a man's life, God is going to sustain that man. And everybody who's working against him is going to find themselves at cahoots with God. You know, do you really want to be in opposition against God's will? And really, that's what was happening. Abner and Saul and his men, they were all working against God. And now look at them. They're all in the grave and will be in the grave. And David is remain, remaining to stand. And such is the case for the man and the woman or the woman of faith who's walking in faith and walking in the promises of God, walking in the promises that God has said to them, not going to the left hand or to the right, not vacillating, not compromising, but just staying true to Jesus Christ. Are you staying true to Jesus Christ tonight? Is your heart completely bent toward him? I would encourage you if it's not there, it's never too late. You can start tonight. Don't get into that fatalistic kind of mindset where you get stuck in a, maybe a sin in your life or maybe it's a habitual sin. Maybe it's something that you're struggling with that nobody knows about and you find yourself stuck and then you say, oh, what's the matter? I might as well just give into it. Have you had those moments? As humans, if you haven't, you will, because such is common to all men. All these things happen to all of us in due time. Just give it time, and you'll find yourself in that place. Hopefully not for long, but such is the man of God like David was. He was a man of faith, and Saul was a man of the flesh. And God will preserve the man who puts his trust in him. In Isaiah chapter 57, verse 13 in the last part of that verse, it says this, But he who puts his trust in me, God says, shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Think about that. But he who trusts in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Didn't David put his trust in the Lord, even though he went through his hills and valleys? I love that. He was never like always on the mountaintop. You know, nobody can relate to somebody who's always on the mountaintop. We're, they're untouchable, you know, nothing happens to them. They're always having a bright day. You know, the birds never mess on their car. I mean, it's, everything is just always perfect all the time. And they're smiling and everything is just good. But not so with normal people, with most of us. We have these hills and valleys. And David had his valleys. Boy, did he have his valleys. And when he had his heights, oh my goodness, he soared like the eagle. 
He was up there with the sun practically kissing it. And then there were times where he was just underneath the rock kissing the dust. And I think you can relate to that. I know I can. But God, but David put his trust in the Lord. And we're going to see, as we go through David's life, we're going to see him that God is going to give him, just as that verse that we just read, he who trusts in the Lord shall possess the land, speaking of Israel, and shall inherit my holy mountain. David put his trust in the Lord, and the Lord saw fit to give him the entire land, not just Judah, the whole entire land. And he did inherit God's holy mountain, Zion in Jerusalem. He inherited that. God gave it to him. And guess what, saint? That after the rapture of the church and after the seven-year tribulation period and when we have the millennial reign of Christ, guess what? David is going to be resurrected in the new, in the millennial reign. He's going to be resurrected. I love that. God is faithful to his promise. As we look at verses 2 through 5, we're going to see a list of David's sons that were born to him in Hebron. And again, why is it here? It's here to show us, again, the theme of tonight. And that is the, the decline of Saul's dynasty. In order for there to be a decline, there has to be a building up of something else. I love what the Bible says. It says God raises up kings and he sets down kings. Promotion doesn't come from man. It comes from the Lord. It doesn't come from the north, the south, the east, the west. It comes from God. He sets down one and he raises up another. And now that we see this, what we're going to read now, we're going to see David's sons coming. And this is a rising of David and a diminishing of Saul's dynasty. Notice verse 2. It says, Sons were born to David in Hebron. His first was Amnon by Ahinoam the Jezreelitess. Amnon, his name is interesting because when, you, when we look at his character later on, we're going to see that he was anything but what his name signified. His name signifies trustworthy or faithful. And we know that he wasn't faithful. He was the one who um, raped his half-sister, Absalom's sister. Because David had many wives. He had at least seven wives that we know of, and he had Children by each of these wives. Amnon was his firstborn. He wasn't a faithful man. Neither was he trustworthy. And his second son, Chiliab, or Daniel, you might want to put in parentheses. And by Abigail, the widow, uh, uh, by Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. The third is Absalom. We know who he is. He's the son of Maacah, the daughter of Telmei, the king of Jeshur, which is in the northern part of Israel to the east of the a sea of Galilee in what you and I would call Syria today. And we'll see later on in 2 Samuel chapter 13 that Absalom not only murders David's firstborn son, Amnon, for raping his sister, but he also tries to take over his father David's throne. And we'll look at him as we go further. But in verse 4 it says, The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Hagith, Adonijah would become a rival to Solomon's throne, and Solomon would ultimately have him put to death. Boy, doesn't it sound like a, doesn't it sound like a soap opera? You know, the young and the restless, or the young and the brainless, or as the stomach churns instead of as the world turns. The blinding light. Remember those old? I don't even know if they're on anymore, but I remember you know the, the guiding light. You know, the blinding light. So you guys need to wake up because this stuff is really, really hilarious. Um, but notice verse 5. And the sixth, Ithrium, by David's wife Eglah, these were born to David in Hebron. Notice six sons, six wives. Do you see a problem with that? <laughs> Does it sound like a potential problem? It is. It is. We'll get to that. Eglah, her name means a heifer. How would you like that, ladies? What does your name mean? A cow. <laughs> Hopefully she was like a really thin woman and, and her name would betray her. You know, but her name, it means a heifer. And of course in that culture it was different. I'm having a little fun with these names, so forgive me. But according to Jewish tradition, um, some believe that this was Michal, um, Saul's daughter whom David had married 
uh, before he went into exile. But I, I believe that if it was her, the Bible would just say so. But there's tradition saying that this name is, is really Michal. Um, we don't really know, and it really doesn't matter. But if this, um, and so if we look at First Chronicles, and as we go through Second Samuel, you'll notice that in First Chronicles, it really talks about David's, especially uh, chapter 11 onward, you really get into more of the intimate details of David's life in, 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 in what we're reading now. So as we read Second Samuel, um, start cross-referencing that with First Samuel, beginning in verse 11, and it'll, it'll really open your eyes to some things. But in First Chronicles chapter 3, it does give us a complete list. I mean, we have a partial list here of the sons that were born to David, each by a different mother. But in 1 Chronicles 3, verse 1 through 9, it gives us a complete list of sons that were born not only to David in Hebron, which we just read, but also in Jerusalem, a total of 19 sons by at least seven wives, including, of course, Bathsheba. Now, I said before, doesn't this sound like a problem, you know, to have all of these wives? You know, except for in Utah, most of us only have one wife. If we're married at all, we have one wife or one spouse, right, unless you live and uh, in Utah, where the Mormon church, they, uh, I don't know if they still do it, but polygamy is uh, uh, something they continue to do, I believe. But is it really God's way? As we look at David's life, his life, and his son Solomon's life would have been so much different had they listened to what God had spoken originally and followed that. And what do I mean by that? In Genesis 1, verse 27, what it says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. And notice, male and female, he created them. He created a male and a female. And much to our culture's chagrin, marriage is between a man and a woman, period. That's what marriage is. No one has the right to define marriage. God has the right. He said it. We must adhere to it. And if we go against it, we do it to our own peril. Right? One woman, one man. And in Genesis chapter 2, 24, what does it say? Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they too shall become one flesh. Notice, they too shall become one flesh. I wonder if David and, and Solomon, if they would have read these verses, and certainly they had. They knew Genesis. They read it. They had the scrolls. They could read them. Why didn't they listen? David and Solomon both would have spared themselves so much pain and heartache had they listened to God. One man, one woman, they too shall become one flesh. What does it tell us in Matthew 19? The Pharisees came to Jesus testing him and they said, to him, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read what they, that, that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave, and here Jesus is quoting Genesis, For this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one. Now can you have three or four wives and be one? I really don't think it's not, it's not written here. It says the man and the woman. They too shall become one. Not the, these three, these four, this community of people, this population of L.A. can you know, be one. You know, I mean, let's be real. It doesn't even make sense. In Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, it says, Do you not know, Paul says to the Corinthians, who are by way a very uh, loose uh, group of people, do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? And shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a harlot? Certainly not. Or do you not know that he who was joined to a harlot is one body with her? For the two, he says, shall become one flesh. It's just so over and over again we see this idea of two becoming one. And that's God's design for a man to be with a woman until death they do part. Until death, they do part. In Romans 7, 2, the woman has, who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law to marry three other guys. No, it says one, <laughs> she's released from the law to be married again. It's pretty clear, I think. 
Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 17. This is a little bit longer of a passage. And I bring this up because we're going to see that David, as a result of these many wives, it's really going to create a problem for him. And we're going to see later on that his own family is going to be in such, there's going to be so many problems. It's going to be the biggest dysfunctional family on the planet. And such is true today. So many dysfunctional families today. And wait till we get to Solomon. (laughs) That's going to be even more strange. Deuteronomy chapter 17. Let's look at verse 14. God here is speaking through Moses concerning the prohibition of Israel's kings. Things that they need to stay away from. And he tells them in advance. Before they even get into the promised land, what does God say through Moses? He says, when you come into the land which the Lord your God has given you, and you possess it and dwell in it and say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses. From one among your brethren, you shall set as king over you. You may not set a foreigner over you. He is who is not your brother, but he shall not multiply. Notice, here it is, verse 16. But he shall not multiply horses for himself. Did Solomon do that? Yes, he did. Nor cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses. Did he do that? Yes, he did. For the Lord has said to you, you shall not return that way again. Notice, verse 17. Neither shall you, he, multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Did David do that? Yes, he did. Did Solomon do that? Oh, yes, he did. And here's God's warning, very clear in Scripture. We we, we see it all the way back in Genesis. We see it throughout the New Testament. Two becoming one. God warns the kings to have one wife, not to multiply wives. And why is that? Because God knows best. And as we get into David's life, you're going to see one of the great problems that arises from David's life is because he missed this. One of the things is he, he wasn't listening in this area. Did God come out and flat out say, you can't have more than one wife? No, he really didn't. I mean, he did say one wife, you know, and, and two become one, but he seems to have allowed this idea of polygamy. It's not a good idea, because we read of it right now. Not a good idea. Not a good idea. So why would I want to do it if it's not a good idea? If there's no precedent for it in the scripture, why do I want to flirt with it? Nor shall he greatly multiply silver and gold for himself. Also it shall be when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of the law. And so it goes. But see, not only David did this, he multiplied wise, but also his son Solomon. Notice in 1 Kings, let me just read this to you for the sake of time, but you might want to write it in the margin of your Bible. 1 Kings chapter 11, what does it say? Verse 1. Notice what I just read to you in Deuteronomy But Solomon, King Solomon, loved many foreign women, as well as the daughter of Pharaoh. Women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, these are all the pagan nations surrounding. So not only is he getting involved in these nations that he really shouldn't be, he's taking multiple wives from each of these things. And from the natural, it seems good, because whenever you want to make a peace treaty with your enemies or your neighbors, the best thing to do is marry the daughter from each of these guys. And when she comes into your house and starts to have children... There's, a, there's a, a trust relationship. Oh, I don't want to go against them. I'm going to hurt my kids and my daughter. And there's this kind of fuzzy feeling that everybody feels. you know. And, and uh, it sounds all good and natural, but it's not good. So, um, so he takes a wife from the women of the Moabites, the Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonians, the Hittites, from the nations of whom the Lord had said to the children of Israel, you shall not intermarry with them, nor shall they, uh, nor they with you. Now, was God just being racist? No, he wasn't being racist. Was he a bigot? No, he wasn't a bigot. What was God concerned about, honestly? Was God, you know, was it, was it, was it, I mean, they're people, right? They're no different. I mean, we have a variety of different people here in the room. Was it that? No. It was because those pagan nations worshiped foreign gods, and God knew that if they got involved with them, they would too would be ensnared into the idolatrous practices, and ultimately it would destroy them. That's the problem. People are people, but God saw that he had to keep his people special and separate from those things. Would to God that we all did that today, keeping our kids separate from things that we know are going to destroy them. So Solomon, notice, clung to these, 
Or notice what God says. You shall not intermarry with them, nor, sh- nor shall they with you. Surely they will turn away your hearts after, God, after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love, and he had 700 wives. 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines. And notice his wife turned away. His wives turned away his heart. Didn't, isn't that what God said would happen? And lo and behold, it did. He wasn't listening. He wasn't obedient to the what we read in Genesis. Had David done that, had Solomon done that, think of all the hurt they could have avoided. The history of Israel would have been completely different if they would have done that. And see, that to me is, is good reason why we should listen to the word of God and not make up our own rules and, and, and think that we can somehow do whatever we want and not expect consequences. There are consequences for everything we do. And if we are not walking with the Lord and listening to him and obeying him, we can expect trouble. We can expect destruction. It's just going to happen. And it may just take some time, but it's coming to a theater near you in Dolby Surround Sound. Trouble is coming to you if you disobey God, right? They turned away his heart. Solomon went after Asherah, the goddess of the Sidonians, after Milcom, the abomination of the Ammonites. Solomon did evil in the sight of the Lord and did not fully follow the Lord as did, he, as did David his father. Then Solomon built high places for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, on the hill that is east of Jerusalem, on the Mount of Olives, and for Molech, the abominations of the people of Ammon. And he did likewise for all of his pagan wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. And see, that is what happened. And all of these things created the mess, created the mess that we see in the Scripture. As a result of those things, We're going to read, as we read, be cognizant of that. Because we're going to find as David begins to begin his reign on the throne, it's his sons and and, and these things, and they're all from different mothers. They're all vying for um, position in in their father's kingdom. They're killing each other and, 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 and lusting for power. Whenever there are things in the Bible that give us warning... Whenever there are things in the Bible, they give us warning, even though they might not be hard and fast commandments against a certain thing, we really ought to pay attention and not to get anywhere near those things. You know, why would you get, why would you go near those things that God says, like drinking alcohol? Why would you continue to drink alcohol when there's such a a prohibition of it in the Bible? To not be drunk with wine wherein is excess. Well, I can have a drink. and you know, Well, if you can, praise the Lord. That's your prerogative if you like. But if, 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 if there's so much about it, you know, st- wine is a mocker and strong drink is raging. You may think you've got a handle on it now, but it's only a matter of time before you get frustrated. You have a bad day, you get fired, and you come home from your job that you just got fired from, and you just tie one on. Then you tie another one on. Next thing you know, it's, it's your release. That's what you do. What's wrong with it? There's nothing wrong with it. Yes, there is. One thing leads to another. It never, ever stops. It has to. That's just the way it works. And for those of us who have been in that world, we know that that is the way it works. But why do you want to get so close to the edge? You know, even in the scriptures, there's a number of scriptures that warn us about sexual sin and sexual promiscuity. What did Solomon tell his son in Proverbs? He says, To keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress, do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids, for by means of a harlot a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon the precious life. Can a man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? The answer is no. So if these things be, then why do we flirt with them? Let's just be honest with the Lord and pay attention because these are things that are in our society right now. Those few things that I just mentioned, they're destroying everything. And they're destroying many homes as we speak. But let's go on to verse 6 here because now after it lists his Wives and his six sons and his six wives. 
It says, Now it was so that there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, but Abner was strengthening his hold. Notice, Abner was strengthening his hold. This man was really the power behind the throne of Ishbosheth. He really wanted to be king, and he wanted to be the, the big guy in control. And we'll see that as we go. And Saul had a concubine. Because we know, we, know, we know that Saul has already passed from the scene, but he had a concubine whose name was Rizpah, the daughter of Ahiah. And so Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? And um, Abner doesn't deny this, and it evidently did happen. And in that type of, uh, in the Middle East during that time, to take one's concubine or to take one's wife, of a king or his concubine is basically usurping his authority. You're basically making your intentions known that I am going to be in power now. And you prove that by sleeping with one of his concubines. And that's exactly what this, what, um, what Abner did. He goes into one of his father's concubines, Rizpah, and he does that very thing. And unfortunately, we see this thing playing out in history too. We see Absalom doing the same thing. Absalom going in and sleeping with one of his father's concubines when he, when he drove him out of Israel. We see it in Adonijah after David passes from the scene. We see um, Adonijah, one of David's sons, you know, going before Solomon asking for Abishag, one of David's concubines, hoping to secure some kind of power. And it was a really rash thing for him to do, and it cost him his life. But notice verse 8, then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth, And he says, am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Basically he's saying, you know, a, a dog is, is just a, 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 a rotten animal in that time. And it was a, a symbol of, of, of dirt, you know, and filth and what a dog can be. Not all dogs. But he says, am I a dog's head that, I, that, um, that belongs to Judah? Today I show loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers, to his friends. And you charge me today with the fault concerning this woman. And notice he, he, doesn't, he doesn't deny it. He's just angry that he got busted. May God do so more to Abner and more also if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. I would have you underline what the Lord, as the Lord has sworn to him. This is Abner's own voice, his own speech. As the Lord has sworn to him, underline that. And what, is, what did God swear to David? Verse 10, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel. Notice, not just over Judah, but over all of Israel and over Judah, from Dan in the, in the north to Beersheba all the way to the south. And, and it's amazing. Abner is uh, opportunist. Do you know what an opportunist is? It's somebody who plays both sides against the middle. And whichever side starts to you know, win, he's on the winning side. He's always on the winning side. He's an opportunist. And that's really what we see Abner doing. Since he knows that Ishbosheth, Saul's son, is really not rising, things aren't looking very good. It just seems to be going downhill every single day. He looks on the ticker tape and he just sees the, you know, the numbers going down and down and down and the stock declining and declining and declining. He's like, I'm jumping ship. I'm going to Judah. I'm going over to David. So he decides to come over to David. If you look at verse 6, and you look at verses 8 and 9, you see how shifty he is. Notice in verse 6, that while there was war between the house of Saul, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. Notice how shifty he is. Now look at verses uh, 8 and 9. What does it say? i got to read it first. Where is it? There we go. Abner became angry. He says, May God do so to Abner, and, and more also, if I do not do for David as the Lord has sworn to him. Abner knew what God had spoken about David, and yet wasn't he living in rebellion against the revealed will of God before? Remember, he's strengthening himself, trying to put Ishbosheth on the throne and Mahanaim over on the eastern side of the Jordan. Why was he doing that when he knew very well the things that had been spoken of David? Just simple rebellion. That's all what it is. And Abner knew. And people like Abner are chameleons. They're willing to go with the flow or whatever is happening so that he can be enriched and stay alive. 
You can't blame him for staying alive, but he's just looking to what he can get. And notice in verse 11, back in our text, he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. And uh, again, Ishbosheth, you know, he, he's talking to Abner, the commander of the army. This guy's got the army. So no matter what Ishbosheth does, he's got a problem. The army's on, on, his, on this guy's side. So he's got a real problem. And then Abner sent messages messengers on his behalf to David saying whose is the land so now he's going to be real nice he's going to be a smooth operator now that he sees Ishbosheth's reign starting to crumble he's going to jump ship and he goes hey David whose land is it it's yours it's always been yours I knew it all along I mean I don't know if you read my Facebook blog but on the pro- on the top there underneath my name with the crown on my head of course it says I believe that David ought to be king you know I mean that's not the way it works it's not the way it works he says, whose is the land? Saying also, make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be, be well with you, and I'll bring all Israel to you. And this is a yet another indicator of David's kingdom increasing and Saul's kingdom decreasing. And so David said, good, I'll make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, I want to see Michal, my wife. I want to see my wife. Do you remember when David was out with Goliath, right before he went out to face off with Goliath? There was a reward on hand, wasn't there? His family would be spared the taxes. He would also get Saul's daughter to marry. So he'd be a a son-in-law to the king. Wow, that's awesome. He'd be getting riches and and gold and all those things. We see that in 1 Samuel 17. And then what happens? After this, after David wins the battle against Goliath, and 1 Samuel 18, beginning in verse 17, says that Saul said to David, Here's my older daughter, Merab. And this all sounds fine and good. This is part of his reward. I'll give to her, you know, to you as wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines do my dirty work, basically. And so David said to Saul, who am I and what is my life and my father that I should be son-in-law to the king? But it happened at the time when Merab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David that she was given to Adriel, the Meholathite, as a wife. So Saul does this. He, because he's so jealous and he hates David so much, he promises his daughter, but right before they're married, he gives her to someone else. How would that make you feel? <laughs> it's not a very good thing. And so, he tricks David. And so, David, or King Saul, finally gives to David, not Merab, but his younger daughter, Michal, but he puts a proviso on it. He says, well, I'm not going to give you my firstborn daughter, even though I'm supposed to give her to you, and I promise, but, you know, it's okay. I'll give you to Michal. I'll give you to her, but I want you to do something for me. I want you to go kill 100 Philistines and bring back 100 foreskins. You can have her as, that'll be your dowry payment for my, my lovely daughter, Michal. So David brings back 200. <laughs> he brings back 200. And so, not only did Michal belong to David, originally, lawfully, but having her now back with him solidifies Israel's confidence in David, seeing that Michal was one of his wives and a member of Saul's family that kind of makes the other ten tribes and, and Benjamin feel much more comfortable coming to David, knowing that he's marrying and bringing back into his house Saul's daughter, making things right. So David, verse 14, sent messengers to Ishbosheth. Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michal, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband, from Paltiel, the son of Laish. And then her husband went along with her to Bahurim, weeping behind her. And, and honestly, you think of this, this is really sad. So, you know, even before, um, you know, when, when David was married to Michal, Remember, he was on the run, and she had let him out of a window, and he, fl- he fleed for his life. And uh, as a result of that, there were probably a couple years where he didn't see her because he's on the run from her insane father who's trying to kill her, kill him. And so, 
Saul gives Michal to someone else's wife, to this Paltiel. And think of how this, how this works now. Now David wants her back. So Saul's youngest son, Ishbosheth, goes to Paltiel and says, um, I know my father gave you to her, or gave her to you, but she really belongs to David. Come with me, young lady. And so she goes. She doesn't appear to be complaining too much. But Paltiel, a poor guy, he's walking behind her crying. Can you imagine just the horror of that? You know, thinking you're married and then your, your wife is being taken away from you. But she was legally David's. Now verse 17, back in our text, it says, Abner had communicated with the elders of Israel, saying, In time past you were seeking for David to be king over you. Now then do it, for the Lord has spoken of David. Notice, here he is again saying that God has done this. And he says, saying, By the hand of my servant David, I will save my people Israel from the hand of the Philistines and all the hand of all their enemies. Abner knew very well what was spoken of of David. And where was it written about David and his reign over all Israel? Didn't God say that to Samuel to tell to David? In 1 Samuel 13, what did it say? Beginning in verse 13. It says, Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. And this is after one of uh, Saul's uh, acts of disobedience. Samuel says to him, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the commandment of the Lord your God, which he commanded you. For now the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought for himself a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be commander over his people, over his people, not just Judah, but over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. There it is. There's part of it. What about in 1 Samuel 15, verse 28? It goes on and says, Samuel said to him, the Lord has torn the kingdom. Samuel says to Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. Who is that? David, he's torn it away from you, torn, the, torn the, the kingdom of Israel, the whole entire thing, not just Judah. Do you see it? Seems fairly obvious, but he's talking about the whole thing, all of Israel. He goes on finally in, in 1 Samuel 16. What does it say? The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you mourn for Saul, seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel? Seeing I have rejected him from reigning over Israel, fill your horn and go. I am sending you to Jesse the Bethlehemite, for I have provided myself a king among his sons. Who is that king who is supposed to reign over all of Israel? David. So God gives to Samuel. Samuel speaks. It's written before everybody. They can see it. Everybody knows about it. Certainly Abner knew about it. Rebelled against it. But he knew, and so he's saying it now. He's very convenient now. It's a very convenient thing for Abner to say, Oh, by the way, I did hear some good things about you, David. Yeah, I was talking to, I heard from Samuel that, uh, you know, that you're supposed to be the king now and uh, over all of Israel. Yeah, I heard it, yeah. And so trying to ingratiate himself with the king. So Abner and 20 men with him came to David at Hebron, and David made a feast for Abner and the men who were with him. And Abner said to David, I'll rise and go and gather all of Israel. And so that's what happened. David sent Abner away, and he went in peace. And, and here, you know, again, Abner is trying to win favor with the king and bring all of Israel to him and say, here she is, you know, the rest of the kingdom. And I'm sure Abner's thinking to himself, oh, it'd be really nice if I had a really nice car and a really nice house. And David, I'm sure, would have given him some kind of reward, perhaps. And he's trying to ingratiate himself. But then the plot thickens. Now, who killed Joab's brother, Asahel. Who killed him on the hilltop? Do you remember who it was? It was Abner, right? So, at that moment, the servants of David and Joab came from a raid. They brought much spoil with them, but Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and for he had gone in peace. 
But when Joab and all the troops that were with him had come, they told Joab, saying, Abner, the son of Ner, came to the king. He has sent him away, and he has gone in peace. And then Joab came to the king, and this is where he gets angry with him because he doesn't understand what has just transpired. And he's very suspicious of Abner, naturally so, right? Because Abner killed his brother. He's on the other side of, of, the, of the battle, in a sense. And he comes to David and he says, what have you done? Look, Abner comes to you. Why is it that you sent him away? And, and he has already, he's already gone. Surely you realize that Abner has come to deceive you, to know you're going out and you're coming in and to know all that you're doing so that he can just wipe you out. So when Joab had gone from David's presence, he does something trick. He, he does something sneaky. He sends messengers after Abner who brought him back from the well. And so Abner's thinking, well, there might be some further information that I need to know. But little does he know there's a conspiracy against him. And so David did not know it. Now when Abner had returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak to him privately. And you can see that. You can just see him coming. Hey, uh, Abner, I, I got something I need, to, I need to tell you. Something happened today that um, I really can't talk to you in front of everybody. I need you to come. I need to talk to you privately. What is it? A little closer. What is it? Oh, it's really good. You're not going to believe this, man. What is it? A little closer. And as he gets close, he reaches down, he grabs his dagger, and he thrusts it into his stomach. And isn't that exactly what Abner did to his brother, Asahel? He took the blunt end of his spear and ran it right through him, and it came in here and went out the back. And Joab says, I'm going to do the same thing to you, pal. And he does it. He stabs him right in the stomach. What's interesting about this is this happened in Hebron. It happened in Hebron. If you remember in Deuteronomy, it talked about a cities of refuge. Hebron was a city of refuge, a city of refuge, and you can read Deuteronomy 19, we're not going to take the time to go there, but it talks about there's certain cities placed all throughout Israel, from the north, on each side of the Jordan River, there's three on this side, on the west side, and then three on the east side, and they were places where if somebody accidentally or inadvertently killed somebody, naturally the family, the men in the family are going to go after him, they call him the manslayer. Or, or, or the, um, the avenger of blood, I'm sorry. So the manslayer is the one who accidentally killed somebody. So what they would do is, if they got to the city of refuge before the, man, before the avenger of blood got to them, they were safe. And Hebron was one of those cities. And here, he is slain. And it's what is a city of refuge, even at this time, Joab slays Abner, not because of a battle, out of revenge and anger. When he gave Asahel several times, several opportunities to stop coming. He gave him, don't come, don't come, stay away from me. I don't want to do anything to you, Asahel. Just leave me alone. Go after somebody else. Leave me alone. And he wouldn't listen. He wouldn't listen. And so he had it coming to him. And he died. It wasn't his intention to kill the young man, but he did because he was defending himself. But, it, but now Abner is murdered in cold blood, in a sense, right there in a city of refuge, which was kind of like a double whammy against Joab. We'll learn as we go through David's life that Joab was one of these men. He was just a, he was a really interesting character, not in a good way either. Very treacherous man, very treacherous man. So verse... Uh, 28, it says, Afterward, when David heard it, he said, My kingdom and I are guiltless before the Lord forever of the blood of Abner, the son of Ner. And let it rest on the head of Joab and all his father's house. And let there never fail to be in the house of, of Joab one who has a discharge or is a leper, who leans on a staff or falls by the sword or who lacks bread. And so Joab and Abishai, his brother, they killed Abner. Evidently, they were both there, complicit in the killing of Abner. Because he had killed their brother, Asahel at Gibeon. Notice what happens to, to David. And, and this is one of the wonderful things about David that I, I find. 
And I pray that we can all have a heart like this, that we don't hold uh, grudges. And even though you have an enemy, and there, there came a time when, when David, his, his subjects became a little confused because he wasn't rejoicing when these things happened. He, he was rather mourn, mourning for them. When, when Saul and Jonathan died, I can understand him you know, sorrowing over Jonathan, his best friend. But Saul, really, the one who's been hunting you for seven years? And now, you know, Abner, the, the commander of Saul's army, he, he, he dies. And most people think, well, David, why aren't you smiling? The kingdom is yours now. I mean, who's going to come after you now? But see, that's just the, the heart of a, of a real man of God is not just the, the ends justifying the means. He, he cared about people, and he wasn't going to take somebody's life for no reason. He wasn't going to go against and, and kill a man in cold blood unless they had to go to war with each other. And then the, the rules of engagement change. But David was such a, a wonderful man. It said that David said to Joab, to the people who were with him, tear your clothes. Notice, he says it to Joab. The one who killed Abner. Now Joab and all you guys, tear your clothes. It's a sign of mourning. Gird yourselves with sackcloth and mourn for Abner. And King David followed the bier, the, the coffin. He's following the coffin and he sings a lament. And here's the lament. He said, should Abner die as a fool dies? Your hands were not bound, nor your feet put into fetters. As a man falls before wicked men, so you fell. And he's, he's, he's speaking of his own uh, his own cousins, isn't he? He's speaking of Joab and the sons of Zeruiah. These are people who are related to him. These are his cousins and his people in his own family. And when all the people came to persuade David to eat food, it was still day. And David took an oath, saying, God do so to me and more also if I taste bread or anything else until the sun goes down. Now all the people took note of it. And notice, and it pleased them, since whatever the king did pleased the people. And, and again, what another great hallmark of David. You know, he, he just lived his life and made decisions in such a way that the people really understood his, they, they understood his genuineness. They understood who he was. He wasn't just a man who was power hungry. He wasn't a killer. He was a warrior, but he wasn't a killer. He was a decent man. He was a good man. He was an honest man. For all the people, verse 37, and all Israel understood that day. Think about it. By Joab killing Abner, doesn't that just throw a wrench in the works now for the rest of Israel coming to David? Now David's general kills their general on Saul's side. I mean, that would, from all practical reasons, you look at that and you're like, it's, it's over now. I mean, they're not going to listen to me. They're just going to come and they're going to raid and they're going to kill us all because we killed Abner. But they see David's behavior. I love this. They see his character, and it's genuine. And people can tell. Can you tell when someone is fake and when someone is real? And when you see somebody who's really genuine in their, in, in their, their actions, doesn't it move you? It changes you. And it changed this whole nation as they began to see David... He, wasn't ups he was very upset that this has happened. He, 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 he sings a lament after the coffin, telling everybody to, you know, to mourn for Abner. And they understood that day that it had not been the king's intent to kill Abner, the son of Ner. And then the king said to his servants, Do, not eat. Do, not, do you not know that a prince and a great man has fallen this day in Israel? And I am weak today, though anointed king, and these men, the sons of Zeruiah, these nephews and of mine, he says, they are too harsh for me. The Lord shall repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. And you know what's really surprising to me is after all of that, you know, David still allows Joab to be the general of his army. And think of how small Joab must have felt after hearing this. I mean, think this is a very solemn moment. They're, they're, they're mourning for Abner, and David says this. First, he exalts Abner and who he was as great general, or, you know, a good man in Israel. A great man has fallen. And these men, the sons of Zeruiah, he says this before them all. How would you feel if your family member gets up in front of everybody and says, 
These sons, these sons of Zerahiah are too harsh for me. The Lord will repay the evildoer according to his wickedness. Speaking of them, speaking of Joab and, and Abishai, who killed him. Pretty interesting, isn't it? But just to see the decline of Saul's dynasty and to see the treachery of, of Abner and to see the, the treachery of Joab. And, and it's a real sad story, isn't it, to, to, to see that. But as we look today, we, don't, we, we see these things happening. We see these things happening. But again, I love David's heart. He had nothing to do with it at all. You know, it's a good thing to be innocent of evil, to not have anything to do with the powers of darkness. Keep your hands clean, Christian. Keep your heart clean. Keep your thoughts clean. Don't be complicit in other things that people are doing. Even when it's very inconvenient, and, and especially when it's very challenging, especially when... It, you're around people that you love and they expect you to do a certain thing and maybe you owe them something and don't go into their, don't play the games. Don't get wrapped up. Don't feel obligated to sin so that you can appease somebody. Never do that. Let's stand and let's pray. Next Thursday evening, Pastor David will be sharing... We will be in the Adirondacks uh, camping uh, this Saturday until the following Saturday. So pray that we, uh, um, <laughs> I, I joke around about black bears and stuff like that, but there are black bears up there, and I hear they're very hungry. And so uh, just pray for us that we have a good time. That the weather be nice, and, um, and pray for those that are going with us that we would just enjoy that time together. But. Let's bring our hearts before the Lord, and, um, and I know that my brothers will bless you as they open the word as, as I'm gone. So, Father, we just uh, thank you for uh, this passage today, Lord, and Lord, it's such a, uh, a discouraging thing, Lord, just to see such recklessness, such, um, such destruction, Lord, and your word is true. It says, there is nothing new under the sun. There's nothing new. Lord, the things that are happening that we read about are happening today. Just different technology, a different time period, but Lord, it's all happening. And Lord, help us to be ambassadors and help us to live lives, Lord, that we don't get wrapped up in these things. That we're not an opportunist like Abner, Lord. That we're not a killer. <laughs> and maybe not a physical killer, but just a, a killer of, of speaking evil about people and talking behind their backs. Lord, help us not to be slanderers and backbiters and, in a sense, murdering others with our words in our hearts. Help us not to be like Joab, God, but rather help us to be like David, who is merciful and gracious. Certainly not a bloodthirsty man, but a man of honor. Lord, help us to be men and women of honor in these days that we live, that the world would see that we are your disciples. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a good night.